voice to me is saying, this is what I believe. These are the ideas or the stories that I stand behind. And I am going to work to make those as clear and transparent to you and own them and let you see them. Then tone is really, do I want to be funny? Do I want to be sarcastic? Do I want to be sort of more academic? Like what's the tone that's going to serve this project and my reader? And discerning between the two, I think can be really useful because sometimes tone will confuse us, the tone choice about what we really have to say. Welcome to the Positive Productivity Podcast, episode 580. The Positive Productivity Podcast was created to empower entrepreneurs to achieve and appreciate personal and professional success. I'm your host, Kim Sutton, and if you're ready, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of Positive Productivity. This is your host, Kim Sutton. And as if the universe wanted to keep on telling me it's time to write your book, today we have another guest who I'm sure is going to be kicking my butt and encouraging me a little bit more. Sorry to set you up like that, Jennifer. But (laughs) Jennifer Loudon is our guest. And she is a writer and author from jenniferloudon.com. But when I was looking at our website, just before we got on, all I kept on thinking was, really? Really? (laughs) It's happening again. I hear you, universe. And by the way, listeners, I took a great big step last night and the outline of chronic idea disorder is finally written. But without further ado, Jennifer, thank you so much for being here. I am so looking forward to our chat. I love the name of this podcast positively. I mean, right? We can be productive in a positive way because to me, productivity can have so much shame around it and pressure and sort of a bro mentality, sort of that tech bro life hack thing. So I'm, I'm so excited to talk about how to be positively productive. And I'm not going to kick your butt about writing your book. I'm going to help you love writing your book. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I, I might kick my butt in, you know, the, in the best way possible. Yeah, but... I don't know if you've heard that the book I'm writing is chronic idea disorder, but the problem is, is that I have chronic idea disorder. Of course, of course. So, you know, getting one thing done at a time is a huge feat. And that's where the positive productivity comes in because I put so much pressure on myself for the longest time to do more, be more, just do what everybody was saying to do. And then I realized this is not the way to do it. You know, I have to do what feels good to my heart. And as far as my work is concerned, like my book Forget the deadlines. Yes, it's good to have self-imposed goals, I think, but there's so much pressure that can be associated with deadlines. Yeah, you have to find the sweet spot between structure and this is the iteration of this idea. This is good enough. I need to get it out there and, and help people and also have it help me. And pushing yourself in a way that either makes the idea, the book, whatever you're sharing, the podcast, the course, too shallow. Like it hasn't had time to to breathe in your heart. Once a year, I do a writer's mastermind for it's, it's for pretty much the whole year, a small group intensive. And one of the gals today, she, she basically is exactly in that place where she's having to write to really figure out what the book is about. But with my help and gentle insistence, she keeps coming back to asking the important questions, which is what is this really about? Like, what's the point of this book and what's the structure? What's the form as, as you said, writing a table of contents. And then the other important question I always point my writers back to 
is why are you doing this? You have to know your deep why, just like you do for all productivity. If you don't know your deep why, then it just becomes your to-do list running your life. Mm, Yes. And I made a huge shift in why I do things about three years ago, because up until then, I was doing everything for money. Oh, yeah. I am not ashamed to say that because it is completely the truth. And I found that when I was working purely for impact or for income, that it sucked. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I can't say it any better way, but it didn't feel good. I really didn't care about the work I was doing. I was saying yes to everybody. And uh, yeah, I guess the best way I have already said it, but it just sucked. Wow. Uh, Jennifer, I would love to know. Well, I would love to know, but I would love for you to share a little bit of your background with the listeners. I know that you grew up in a family of entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. but I'd love to hear how you got to where you are today. Oh, God, that's a long story. I'm 56. I've been doing this. <laughs> I wrote my first book when I was 28. You know, I, I think that probably one of the really important parts of the story that I'm trying to write about in my new book that'll be out next year is, is the different moments when life calls us towards our next, what I call, the name of the book is Why Bother? And my thesis in the book, which I think really fits with your work, is there there are moments and junctures in life, small ones and big ones, when we're asked to say, what do I want to bother about now? What is it time to let go of? What is it time to extract the good from? Where is it time to do my grieving? Where is it time to say that is no longer my desire and maybe it never was? So for me, I started off wanting very much my whole life to be a creative person. I found my way to film school in LA at the ripe age of 19. Um, But I really wasn't ready for that level of challenge of politics. So while I had a little bit of success, and I'm sure I could have found lots of success there, I wasn't wasn't ready in my heart or my intellect or my my resiliency by any means. And so out of that came a, a real long, hard, why bother time, a lot of depression, drinking too much, just really lost. And in a moment of great surrender, the title for my first book, The Woman's Comfort Book, uh, came into my head so clearly, I actually turned to look at the front door because I thought my my landlord who lived right above me, I lived in a little guest house, had like opened the door and said it to me. <laughs> and I didn't, I had never considered writing a book at the time. I didn't really read self-help books. I, I was in therapy, but I tended to read like Jung, you know, and Marion Woodman and, you know, deep stuff and And that book title wouldn't leave me alone. And what I know now, looking back on that, it was published in 1992, was that it was really my psyche trying to help me find my way. And I I think that's very much true in the book that you're writing. We write the books we need to read. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We must become the person who understands enough to be a little bit ahead of our reader and show them the way and who can change in the process of doing the writing. It took me a lot of books. I've written eight or nine of them, I think, now to figure that out. You know, I used to think, and I still do, I'm struggling with this book right now. Like, you have to know it all. You have to know it perfectly. No, you have your slice of knowledge, experience, thought leadership, stories to write from. So that began a journey became a word of mouth bestseller. It really launched my career. And I just kind of made it up from there, writing other books, speaking, teaching, um, leading retreats. And my work with writers emerged about in 18, 19, I lose, I lose track years ago. And just kind of, again, it was just something I was, I was always loved writing. I loved 
literature. I was a huge reader. I was that kid who read in the living room when your mother's yelling at you and right there next to you and you have no idea that your mother is yelling at you. So I was one of those kids that was reading when, when my mom was yelling too, because books were my escape. But I specifically remember, oh, I, the name of the book just escaped me. But I was sent to my room, not in a bad way, but to rep Christmas presents for my cousins. And we had gotten one of my cousins who I don't, I, I would be surprised. I would have to say it. I would be surprised if she ever read a book, but I, we got her a book and instead of wrapping it, I laid in my bed for the next four hours reading it myself before I wrapped it. I that with all the books I gave my friends and family. That's hysterical. Yeah. And I remember actually my mom would take us to the library all the time. I, I think we personally kept our public library alive with our late fees. <laughs> and I remember getting the Babysitter's Club books when I turned eight or nine. And that really got me on the roll. But then I went to art school, not film school, but I went to be an interior architect. And the I got through it. That's the best I can say about it. I got through it. I strived for success. And I did a really good job at everything I did, but it just wasn't, I realized after I graduated and I think probably it was really in me before I graduated. Is this really what I want to be doing? Right. And the critiques were so hard. I can take criticism today and I, and I cherish every bit that I get because I know that for the most part it's intended for good. But I remember the first time a teacher or a professor took an uh, exacto knife to one of my models. Uh-huh. I had to excuse myself and go to the ladies' room and cry because I was like, oh, are you kidding me? I just spent two days, no sleep building that model, and now it's just gone. I think you point to a really, a, both a tragedy in our culture and, and an opportunity that we all have if we can normalize it, which is that we do get into these situations and places, jobs, degrees. I have a daughter who's 25, um, who's very much out in the world and in a good job, but wondering what's next for her and where is she being called in the field of psychology and does she even want to stay in it? And when we have permission and role models to explore that, and if it wasn't so doggone expensive to go to school, I think that our why, some of our why bother times wouldn't have to be as painful or, or, or last as long. Absolutely. And I, I don't regret going to college, going for that degree. And at that mm-hmm. time, because I believe I learned a lot, I would love to know if you would do film school again. But as far as my kids are concerned, I'm not pushing college because I think they can get a lot of the same life experiences I got in those four years doing other things. It's so true. And I think that's becoming more and more accepted, which is great. I wouldn't redo. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, gosh, I wish I hadn't gone to film school. There, There's just, I'm at the age now where I can look back at so many things that I, that I did regret or I wish I would have done differently and have so much compassion and for myself, but also find the good, the things that I wouldn't be where I was now if I hadn't had those experiences. But I do wish for my past self and therefore is my intention for my future self to learn a little quicker. (laughs) And I think one of the ways that we do that, in fact, I know, I don't think I know from such deep experience is that we must be grounded in what I call self-compassionate grit, which is self-compassion, the practice of self-compassion actively 
tied to, you know, stick being resilient, sticking with things, being curious, the growth mindset. And sometimes I see self-care, at least, if not as much self-compassion, becoming more married to collapsing, right? Mm-hmm. Or just, oh, I, I, you know, I'm just going to be nice to myself and spend the next week on the couch watching, you know, fill in your favorite show. And versus, you know what, I'm really overwhelmed. I'm quitting for the evening. I'm going to take an hour to watch one show. Then I'm going to take a bath. I'm going to get my clothes laid out for tomorrow. I'm going to get myself all set up for a better day, right? Because I know and believe I can do something different and make progress tomorrow. And I think if I would have known that, I think I would have saved myself a ton of time throughout my my career. Absolutely. So the first three years of college, I was a nerd. I, I don't know any better way to say it. I lived in the dorms. I was in downtown Chicago and there was security that would let us into the building. And if they had any indication that we had been drinking or doing anything, you know, if we were drunk, let me just put it that way, we would not be allowed back into our dorm rooms. Uh-huh. So rather than understand my limits, I just didn't go out. Right. And you can't force yourself to work all the time. And the same thing happened with my business. For the first five years, I didn't do anything besides work, 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 work. I feel like I'm, yeah. I'm starting to grow up now. But by growing up, I'm also going back to a younger me. Yeah. Does that make well, any sense? Sure, it does. Because part of what we have to do developmentally, and I think this, again, it's part of our work as creatives and entrepreneurs. And, and part of what happens in these why bother passages is we often do have to go back and, and sort of reparent or repattern some some passage in our life that didn't get quite done correctly. So when I got divorced from my first husband, uh, I'm married to my second. And and I always feel like when I say that first husband and second husband, that there's going to be another one. No, I'm done. <laughs> oh my gosh, um, seriously, are you just my older sister? Because that's the same feeling I have. No, this is the one. <laughs> this is the one. But when I was in that transition after Chris and I split up, I acted like a crazy woman. I dated all of these men that were that I knew logically were completely inappropriate. And I just acted like I was in high school. And I, there was some stuff that I hadn't worked out about being a woman, about power, about my own being the object of my own desires, being this rather than the subject of a man's desire, stuff around my mom. And it really was messy and ugly. And I was so ashamed of it afterwards and often felt I was sort of rescued by meeting this great man who I've now been with for 11 years and very happily married to. And said to him last night, you know, we spend so much time together. He said, but it's never enough. (laughs) But so I think having a lot of curiosity about those passages like you're in right now, right? Which is, wow, I'm learning to balance, not feeling like I have to work all the time. I'm learning really essentially self-trust. And I remember doing the same thing about my entrepreneurial and writing journey. When I tried to make myself work. 24 hours a day. When I wasn't working my straight job, I was trying to write. And I got myself into quite a serious depression over that. We need fun. We need pleasure. We need downtime. But our culture of productivity, as well as our worries about taking care of ourselves and the wolf at the door and whatever trauma we've had in the past, family stories that have been passed on to us about scarcity you know, we have to work with them and befriend them or otherwise they're going to shape us in ways that we aren't happy about. 
Oh my gosh, I can just ditto all of that. I want to go back to your husband for just a second. Sure. I'll say that to my husband too. And I'm like, don't you think we should make some local friends? <laughs> because we are homebodies. And he's like, no, I've got you. That's all I need. I'm like, well, we really need some local friends. I should say we're, we're really lucky to have a, a group of friends and neighbors. In fact, we we ran in a 10K yesterday. It's the biggest mm. 10K in the nation. And it's called the Boulder Boulder, for those of you who know Colorado. And it is the most fun race. There's 25 bands along the route. There's uh, Elvis impersonators. There's pugs you can kiss. There's slip and slides. So we ran that with a group of friends, and we're really lucky to have that. But those friends are, are probably... Bob loves them very much, but keeping in touch with them and doing things with them is much more something I push us to do. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we're we're about to enter phase two of kids in school. And I remember from phase one of kids in school that there was a lot of camaraderie that came out of that. So with phase two starting in just a few months, holy moly, it's going to be a lot of fun, a lot more mom chauffeuring. Yes. And, and just a lot more interaction with well other parents so it'll be fantastic would you mind sharing what some of the other books were that you wrote and how you came to them was it like your landlord opened the door again and you just got the title into your head or no that was the only time that happened um my next book was a total lark i was writing the book proposal for the first one and without any thought of what this would entail i wrote in the book proposal and this could be a series <laughs> And so it became a series. So the next book was the Couples Comfort Book. And my husband and I at the time had been together for a number of years. Even though we were young, we had met in college. And so I wrote about how do you keep a relationship alive? What does it mean for a relationship to be a source of comfort and, and care? So it's really, those early books were really encyclopedias. Um, so that was an encyclopedia of how to be a, a healthy couple, which when I was getting my divorce, I remember I woke up in the middle of the night and sat bolt upright and went, oh my God, I wrote a book for couples. Divorce. <laughs> <laughs> but this was a number of years later that we got divorced, probably 20 something. And then I wrote the pregnant, I got pregnant and I wrote the pregnant woman's comfort book. It was all about the journey of pregnancy and postpartum and how do you, how do you make that adjustment in your identity? How do you take care of yourself? I'm was so proud of that book. It was incredibly uh, difficult to finish because my daughter did not sleep and had colic for nine mm. months. But it also led me to have a lot of epiphanies and do some really good research about postpartum. And then I became really obsessed with with retreats. I had always loved solitude. I'd always felt that solitude, learning to be alone was a really important part of claiming your desires as a woman. And so I researched, that was a hard book to write, the woman's retreat book, how to create your own retreats for yourself and perhaps a friend or a small group, um, really much more of a woman's study book, but also kind of an encyclopedia. Then I took a break. And not really on purpose. I was really lost for a while. It was one of my why bother periods. And out of that uh, came my next book, which was The Comfort Queen's Guide to Life. And in soft cover, it was renamed Comfort Secrets for Busy Women, which I always hated. And that book was really, it was part memoir, like telling funny stories about myself. I created a character called the Comfort Queen who kept visiting me with lessons. It was journaling prompts. It was a real sort of, I was trying to tie together a lot of threads of things I'd been learning and thinking about over the years. It was a really, really good book. It never... 
it never took off the way the other books did. I think we never found the right title for it. Title can be so important. We never found the right positioning for it. But it, it's a book that I'm really look back on, even though it's kind of uh, cheeky in places and maybe a little sillier than I am now that I felt really proud of. Then I took another long break. I really started to build my business online. I started to teach a lot more. I wanted to take control of my own process more. I spent so much of the first 15 years of my career waiting to be chosen by speaking bureaus, by media, by Oprah, by, you know, but people to read my work. And when I got online pretty early in 1999, I really started to see that was an opportunity to change that story for myself and really control my own destiny. So I really worked on building an email list over the years and really offering more things directly to my people. Jen, can I interrupt you just for a moment? Sure. I've been reading Jen Sincero and Rachel Hollis this year, and I want to go back to what you said about being cheeky. Like mm-hmm. that, That's been something that I've been struggling with when writing my book, because if I let my true personality shine, you know, there's the risk of offending people. I don't, okay, listeners, I've admitted this before, but I don't usually curse on the podcast, but I do have a mouse when I'm not <laughs> recording. And I wouldn't necessarily put that into my book, but my sense of humor can be a little bit my husband actually objected with me the other day. I told him that my my sense of humor is dry and a little bit off color. And he says, I don't think so. But I think that's because his is as well. So maybe he just doesn't see it like others would. Mm-hmm. But when you're advising your clients and going through your your retreats and workshops now, mm-hmm. do you recommend that they, they let their personality shine in the book or try to make it more general? And I, I don't mean that in a bad way. It really depends. It depends what they want the book to do for them and what the re- who the reader is they want to serve. I make a distinction when I'm teaching writing between voice and tone. Voice to me is saying, this is what I believe. These are the ideas or the stories that I stand behind. And I am going to work to make those as clear and transparent to you and own them and let you see them. Then tone is really, do I want to be funny? Do I want to be sarcastic? Do I want to be um, sort of more academic? Like, what's the tone that's going to serve this project and my reader? And discerning between the two, I think, can be really useful because sometimes tone will confuse us, the tone choice, about what we really have to say. Mm, I love that clarity because for me, writing an academic book, it would just feel so out of place for me. Yeah, I thought it would. I am very sarcastic. I don't share that a lot on the podcast, but I am. I share facetiousness and sarcasm around my house multiple times a day. But mm-hmm. the humor, I, I don't see how I can write chronic idea disorder and not have humor in it. Well, it's in the title, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Sometimes we have to back up from what an original spark of an idea is, whether it's a title or whatever, and go, well, what, what is this telling me? Like, what is my impulse? And we have to bring it to consciousness a bit more. We have to be deliberate about it. So it, the title does suggest, uh, you know, a, a, a funny tone, uh, funny stories, poking fun at yourself. So we have to often examine that. Like, what is the tone that my idea, the spark of my idea, what is the tone that my people like if you have a platform already? Or if you don't, what is the tone of the people I want to reach, that I want to work with, that I want to influence? Do you think it's possible to typecast ourselves? Like I'm looking at film and movies in this example, but to typecast ourselves as a specific genre or a tone of author? 
Sure. And we can get typecast as it in it because if you're successful, people want the same thing from you. Right. 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 Sometimes, you know, you look at, you look at different authors who either, who either that they're comfortable with that and they can work within it. And I'm thinking it's particularly of fiction authors working in certain genres and they're like, yeah, this is cool. I'm okay with this. I can find the fulfillment in this and other, other authors you can watch. And they're like, no, I, I can't keep doing that. Uh, I'm thinking of a, a, a writer, a novelist. Oh God, he, his name is escaping me, but every one of his books is completely different. Hmm. And most agents would tell you, don't do that. You're, you know, you're creating a product like toothpaste, but you have to decide what, what again is, is going to work for you as well as your uh, bank book, you know? Yeah. I mean, didn't Stephen King try something outside of the Oh, he's done all kinds of things. Yeah. But I think he's also had some pen names that he's used besides mm-hmm. Stephen King when writing under different genres. Yeah. A number of authors do that. And that can be one of the ways to to create different expectations for your reader. And then some people don't even question their tone. Like you mentioned, Jen Sh- I can never say her last name. I don't even know if I'm saying it right. So, Jen Sincero, sorry, you'll have to come on to the podcast and tell me how to properly pronounce your last name. <laughs> I, I've never read one of her books, but I get the sense that that tone is pretty much who she is. So, some people, their tone comes with their voice. They wouldn't separate the two. They're like, this is the voice I speak in, this is the voice I write in, and this is the voice that allows me to express my truth. So you don't have to separate out the two if it's not useful. It's just a separation I make because a lot of the women that I work with, and I work with women as a writing coach exclusively, they have a hard time owning what they want to say. And that therefore they get confused with tone and the way to present it. And then it'll obscure the truth that they need to be a stand for. Mm. I can see that. Now, this is a totally a bit of a shift in questions, but I apologize because this is very forward, but at this point, would you say that you write for the love of the art or are you writing for income or a mix of both? I'm sorry, but not sorry, because I know it's a very forward question. Yeah. So for the first 12, 15 years of my life, I made the bulk of my living from writing, from either advances or royalties. Really, really lucky. I usually earn several hundred thousand dollars a year as a writer. And I just got really lucky. And then I also would supplement that with speaking. I would usually do a number of keynotes a year. And I also would do product, not endorsement, but where you would you a company would hire you and you would talk I would talk about self-care and comfort or you know women's you know pregnancy, those kind of things. And on behalf of a product. So those were, that's how I made my living for more than probably the first half of my career. Now I make my living mostly by teaching courses and retreats and my online community. And so my writing, I write every week at my blog, you know, slash newsletter. And most of my books are still in print that really supports this other, these other lines of income. And uh, when I gave up writing about comfort and self-care, I knew I was cutting off a whole bunch of income for speaking and product and, you know, speaking on behalf of brands. But I was really done. I just couldn't do it anymore. There's only so much you can say about it, you know. And it's also become like such a popular, like $2 billion industry. And I felt queasy about being part of it for some different reasons. So now I would say I write to express the ideas that I must get out. 
And I try to do it in the best writing I possibly can because I love words and I believe in the power of words so strongly. This book that I'm writing now, I feel like it is the book that I have to write. So I think the answer is both. I love that. Yeah. Regarding writing your book now, do you have a schedule that you follow or do you write when it's on your heart? Oh, God, no, I have a schedule. I'm self-publishing this book after being published by, you know, the big five publishers, you know, always having a publishing deal. I really decided that um, I have a tendency to hope someone will know better than I do or that will rescue me or kind of take things over. And it's a really, it's like a story I'm always trying to root out. So I'm putting my money where my mouth is <laughs> and I'm self-publishing this book. But I have engaged a firm to help me, the boutique publisher that... They are selective about who they work with, but you're still paying them, but they manage the whole process. So once you're signed on with them, there is a regular publishing schedule, just like I would have if I had sold this to a a mainstream publisher. So I'm on deadline now. I could still pull the plug. I have maybe like a couple, like another week or so where I could say, no, I'm not ready. I don't want to do it. This idea needs more time, but I don't think I'm going to do that. I think that that is my fear talking. It feels like such an important book to me that there's a part of me that wants to go back and just do a ton more research. But I think I've made the choice now. I, I All the way through the first draft, I started the second draft, that this is more of a personal book. And that while I'm definitely drawing some conclusions like that are, you know, that are big ideas, that I'm going to keep doing it from my experience as a, as a woman and a coach and a writer. My business coach has been keeping me accountable for the last year on working on one thing at a time. Oh. Now, I can't say I'm, well, <laughs> I would be completely lying if I said that I focus on one thing at a time. <laughs> but as far as major projects go, mm-hmm. I've been I've been relatively good. And so when we officially made the shift just last week to me having this book done by the end of this year, she said, you know, just... Just write it, Kim. This is the first edition. This is the first edition. If there's more that you want to add in the second edition, great. But how much is that going to stand up for your conquering of chronic idea disorder just to say that you got the first edition done? I was like, holy moly. I never even thought about that. It doesn't need to be perfect this time. And I think that's what part of the fear was that was holding me back was, what if this isn't right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, gosh, I know that feeling. I know that feeling for myself and for all the people that I work with. I think that the thing that I navigate back towards uh, when I'm feeling that is to really question what is right. I think right is, quite frankly, a very patriarchal idea. It's uh, sort of an earworm that gets in our head. It's an idea that we get from our educational system, at least the educational system most of us went through. What is right? It is performance, right? It is it is somehow pleasing this faceless mob. So what I always go back to is knowing who I'm writing to. Who are these specific people? You can make up an ideal reader. You can interview some people. You can take some of your students or clients. Who is this person? What is right for them? And then why do I feel like I have to claim that I know everything? I think that, again, is it's such a patriarchal um, sort of man 
explaining model, right? So when, it, when I was writing in my first chapter of my book, it's like, here's who I am. I'm a really privileged person. I'm cisgendered. I'm straight. I'm white. I've always had health insurance. I've never worried about being homeless. I'm going to do everything I can to think about other biases and other experiences in the world. But this is who I'm writing for. That from this is who I am. These are the experiences I've had. Remember, you take it or leave it. And I think sometimes we're afraid to claim that to say this is all I know. And instead, we, we think we have to have this universal knowledge. And also, can we in the, this is the day and age, especially this is great about self publishing, I get to change it if I want to change the next draft, you know, I mean, Absolutely. The next, the next if I really do something, you know, a fact check that is wrong, or, or something that really is like, wow, that's really patently wrong and false. But what is wrong? What is false? What is right? It, it's a very fascinating gray area, you know? Yes. Now, I do have a question about about the publisher that you're working with. I I do understand that you're self-publishing and I understand how it works when you hire a publisher to assist. But I know that listeners are probably some listeners are probably wondering, are the full rights of the book to yours when oh, yeah. you go that route? Oh god, yes. Don't you ever give away the rights to anything. No, 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 no. Um, Even with the big 5 publishers? No, no. No, no, no. You're giving them the rights you're giving them are for a period of time, for the for as long as the book is in print. So yes, they own it. And, and if they decide to keep the book in print, even though it's really not available, you can be a little bit screwed. I've had that happen before. But in general, then the rights revert back to you and then you can self-publish. Um, so always have someone read your contract, but you're never giving away rights in perpetuity um, for them to do whatever they want with. And if you do, you know, it, you should be very, very careful while you're doing that. It should definitely not be a major work of yours. But no, I own everything. Every decision is mine. And I own every, you know, audio rights and, you know, uh, foreign rights and, and all of that. Yeah. And I would in another situation, but I will have more control and I will make lots more money, potentially. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Now, I don't remember which number book you said it was. Maybe it was the fourth one where the, the book title just didn't catch. Was it the publisher who changed the title of the book? Well, they... The, the first title was the best we could all come up with. And the second title was my publisher. And I was pissed about that. So that was the, the book that title that I came up with is the comfort queen's guide to life. It just was too vague. It was intriguing, but it was vague. And comfort seekers for busy women was my second publisher on soft cover. And that was their idea. I didn't like it. And, and they shoved it down my throat and it didn't work either. And then the book after that was also not great title. (laughs) Also my choice. We couldn't come up with anything better. And that was the life organizer. It's just, it's a great book, but it's not what it's about. It sounds like it's about organizing your stuff. And what it's really about is, is how do you keep living with intention? How do you keep making the hard choices, which is a huge theme of my work and continues into now. It's why I do the Oasis every week which is my community. And it's a theme in the new book. Why bother I, it, choosing and, and choosing, making these hard choices about where our time and energy goes and what we care about. It's not something a lot of us are comfortable doing and it's really hard to do on your own. So that, that and then I did the last book I did was a book for national geographic. A friend of mine was the publisher for a while and it was a journaling book. And that, that was just a quick uh, project. Hmm. Now, let's imagine you're getting ready for bed, you're laying down for bed, maybe your light has just been turned off, (laughs) and you have an idea for your book. What Mm. do you do? Sometimes I will turn, if I just turn the light off, I'll turn the 
light back on and write it down. But if I've been laying there at the middle of the night, um, sometimes I'll turn the light on, but I'm always really, my husband has more trouble sleeping than I do. So a lot of times I'll be like, I'll just remember it in the morning, which doesn't always work. Mm -hmm. So I get a lot of ideas when I'm out running and I'll record them on my um, phone because I usually have it with me because I'm usually listening to music unless I'm up on a mountain trail and keeping an eye out for critters. So I'll often listen to those later and think, first of all, boy, I was breathing hard. (laughs) (laughs) And second of all, wow, that's why did I think that was such a great idea? (laughs) But I do think it's really an act of self-honoring to capture your ideas whenever you can. Mm. Yeah. Well, when you said life organizer, right? (laughs) So so I'm sitting in my office looking out into the floor right now, and I have seven garbage bags full of shredded paper. My husband and I were joking that we really should have a hamster because, you know, environmentalists would not be happy that you know this is i'm sure they shouldn't be in garbage bags and yes it should be recycled but what could we make use of this or you know what could we do but this weekend i went through five boxes of paperwork and two file drawers and shredded nonstop, and it felt so good but in the in the process i found all these little notes and all these envelopes Listeners, I am horrible about mail. Do not send me mail unless it's in a greeting size card envelope because chances of it getting opened if it's in like a, what's it called, number two envelope? Uh Pretty slim because it just goes with the bills. But the number two envelopes, often the backs get used for notes. So when I'm listening to podcasts or when I have random ideas, that's where it goes. So I'm going through a Tupperware box full of mail that has never been sorted. Full disclosure, all my bills get paid online. I get the notifications in my email. So I'm not worried about opening the envelopes usually. But I'm seeing all these ideas. and I'm like, whoa. So I had to start pulling up, you know, my electronic or my project management system and start recording these. But it felt so good just to get them officially documented. Because this, Jen, this was, these were uh probably six years of scraps of notes. I have not gone through these file cabinets in eight years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how do you write? I know that is a big question, but do you write in word or pages? Do you have a favorite tool that you use? Are you using Evernote and just compiling it all into different pieces? I'd love to know what your flow looks like. Yeah, I use three different things depending on what I'm writing. I'm a huge believer in organization. I'm pretty dyslexic, so it's taken me a long time to figure out ways to work with my mind and not lose stuff. And if I don't have a place for it to go, I'm like one of those Zumba or no, Roomba, Roomba, those Roomba vacuum cleaners that gets caught in the corner, right? I can't move on because I don't know where it goes. So uh, my three different places depend on what I'm creating. So if I'm working on my book, everything goes in Scrivener, which is an inexpensive, really powerful word processing uh, software that I just love. And But I only use it for my book. Some people use it for everything, but 
everything goes in there, including my research. So if I have an idea or I get something on the web and I collect it someplace else, then I always make sure I move it to Scrivener. So that's the rule about that. If I'm writing teaching materials, so if I'm writing stuff for the Oasis or the audios I make there every week, or if I'm writing something for one of my retreats, it all goes in Evernote, as well as anything personal, goals, money stuff, you know, everything I clip about writing and publishing, it all goes into Evernote. And then my third thing is Google Drive. And everything goes in there that's going to be shared with my team or my proofreader. So that's all my blog posts, all my my sales pages, all my sales emails. So that all gets written in there and then edited, shared and edited and et cetera. So I know when I go to look for something, if I'm looking for a blog post, I go to Google Drive. If I'm looking for a sales page, go to Google Drive. If I'm looking for something in the book or I need something to say something, go to Scrivener. So that really helps my flow. The other thing I use, which is huge, and I only started this a couple months ago, but it's been a life changer. It's like, God, I like to play with art. And I got this big, cheap paper. It's 11 by 20, just to like make a lot of cheap, uh, like to be able to express on really quickly. But I didn't like it for making art because it's so thin. And I like to layer things and use water. And I was like, damn, I bought all that paper. What's it going to be for? And then one day, I don't know why, I was sitting here in my office and I had the idea to get it up here from the basement where my art space is to use for writing. So I had this big pile of 16 by 20 or whatever it is, 16 by 20 paper, cheap paper. And I write all over it and I make mind maps all over it. And it really helps me work through my thoughts before I go to the um, whatever I'm writing on my computer. So that's a huge tool for me, writing by hand, but on big paper. Oh my gosh, Jen, you just inspired me. I have this big Ikea closet unit that was here in in the house in my office before we moved in. And it has these really dark glass sliding doors. And last summer, one of my awesome team members ordered me some white whiteboard markers, Mm -hmm. which I didn't even know existed. But I wanted to use these big glass doors, which again are dark, as a whiteboard. Well, my kids realize that they could just go up and wipe it off the little ones did Uh but I've got panels I have panels that are big enough and I've been trying to find a good mind mapping tool I just haven't found one that gets along with me yet Uh and you just made me realize I can just go up to a panel that they can't reach yet and draw it take a picture share it with the team and then I don't have to worry about finding a tool another tool again Right, right. Yes, another tool again is often where we are going to go down a rabbit hole that is not, that's more about shopping and getting away from creating than it is, or trying to find the perfect solution than it is to just making something work, making something work. And for me, what I do for mind mapping is based on the work of the late Gabriel Rico, and she called it clustering. It's not fancy, it's really ugly, but you make a question or a phrase as briefly as possible, you circle it, and then you draw lines out from that and circle every little phrase or question you come up with until you're clearer about what you're gonna write next. Mm -hmm. So it's not fancy, it's not software, and that works fantastic for me, and I use it every single day. Absolutely. When I had to switch from hand drafting to AutoCAD oh, as a designer, I mean, that felt this, I felt like I lost a lot of the creativity because mm-hmm. now I was limited to the restrictions of the tool instead of the creativity in my brain. If I can't draw it using this tool, then I need to adjust it. And that sucks. Yes. Yeah. 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 What most lights you up about your retreats, masterminds and your oasis? basically what what you're doing now 
Yeah, I think what lights me up the most is, you know, I have a split personality. Part of me loves to be alone in this little office and writing and thinking and reading. And part of me loves to teach and to have an impact. So what lights me up most is when I, I see that light bulb go on for someone. You know, I, I led a retreat a few weeks ago. And, you know, this is not about tuning my own horn. This is about the process when someone shows up and dedicates themselves. But one of the women in the final circle, you know, said, I, said, I feel like this retreat saved my life. For She's been retired for 16 years. And ever since she had retired, and she had retired pretty young, she had been unhappy and really um, stuck in this, place of leaving the past and not having anything really speak to her. And she really felt like that experience woke her up to being grateful and happy to be back in her life and bothering again. So it's moments like that, man, which I really, I don't mean this to sound like false modesty. I do not take it personally. I have worked this process that I create for so long. It's got so many layers. It's not about me. It's about the place and the, the safety that I create and the different systems that I use and approaches. But that moment, oh, my God, that lights me up. Or in the Oasis last week, I talked about the fixed mindset and got people to investigate their fixed mindset. And, you know, women come back and they're like, oh, my God, it's I see how I'm getting in my own way. I see that it doesn't have to be this way. I, it's not that big of a deal to change my mindset. It doesn't take the time that I think it does. And that just, you know, that makes my day. Mm, that's so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I, I did make that shift from income to impact and then it was from, you know, far on one side to far on the other. And now I've realized I can make an impact and make money by doing what I love. So I'm loving that I can impact people and hear the positive praise and make yeah. money do it, doing it. Yeah, you have to have both. Yeah. If, you know, the thing that I see so often getting in the way of entrepreneurs is that they don't do the back and forth. They don't ask what is intriguing and interesting and compelling for me and what, it, what is the population I want to serve need and how can I bring the two together? And it, it, sometimes it's really hard because it's hard to see our own gifts and believe in them. We think, well, we, we need to offer something blazingly original, which is really rarely true. And and then we're afraid to look at what people want. We're afraid to be intimate with whether it's our readers or our customers. I don't mean intimate like go make out with them. I mean intimate like what what are they what are they like get to know them? Like what are they needing that you can offer? And really being willing to be in that spot and be seen there. That's where the work comes from. But if you don't believe in it, if you're just going through the motions, it's pretty hard to do the very genuinely uh, emotionally taxing work of doing the writing or, or creating the course or creating the product that you're going to put out there. Wow, I couldn't say that any better. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, Jen, it's been such an incredible conversation. And you have me, I'm still over here humming about the tone, because I had never thought about tone in my book before. And now I think it's going to even be so much easier to write the book. Away. But for listeners who you've inspired, where can they go to find out more about you and about your programs? 
Well, please come to Jennifer Loudon, L-O-U-D-E-N.com. And when you sign up, we have this really cool ebook that I wrote, which is this process to take you through and unstick you and wherever you're stuck creatively. And if you're not stuck creatively, oh, well, you know, you'll have it on your hard drive for another time. <laughs> and my retreats are, are always sold out for the year ahead, but there's you can get on my list and know about them when they come. We, we open them again for uh, in October. And same thing for the mastermind. Uh, we start talking about it later in the year for next year. And the Oasis is opening again for members. We open it a couple times a year. And that's going to happen next week. We're actually doing a free course that starts. Well, actually, I'm sorry. When, we're, when you're all listening to this, I'm sorry. The Oasis is closed again. But it'll open again in the fall. <laughs> So you're just providing the the truth as to why we all need to have some type of opt-in so that we can have people who are on the list who want to know about our products and will hear about it the next time that it opens back up again. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, opt-ins don't have to be a big deal. I have friends who wrote a, a blog post that went, that was popular and they turned that into their opt-in or, you know, something that you repurpose. So it doesn't have to be a big deal. It just has to be in alignment with what you care about. And um, yeah, I'm really lucky that there's a, there's a demand for my work and it's it's small corner of the world. I know I'm so lucky. Well, Jen, you are going to be getting me on your list because I am personally stuck. Listeners, you know, I develop funnels and marketing automation and business automation day in and day out, but I am stuck on my own funnel. So I will be opting in. (laughs) If you are driving, working out, you know, watching out for scary critters on a mountain trail or just trying not to burn dinner, you can go to thekimsutton.com forward slash PP580 to find the show notes, the transcription, and all the links to the resources that we've talked about today. But Jen, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. No, me too. Thank you for having me. You are so welcome. Do you have a parting piece of advice or a golden nugget that you can offer to listeners? The thing that I see shutting down so many creative women is not believing that their ideas matter. And the thing that I see myself having to do over and over again is first believe that I matter. It doesn't mean my ideas aren't going to need work, that that I don't need to extend myself, that I don't need to work on how I word my offers. We've had to rewrite the page for the Oasis so many times because what we do there is kind of elusive and magical to try to put it into words, right? So that doesn't mean I won't have to do that. But if I can keep coming back to this matters to me and I matter, whether I get crickets in the beginning or not, So that would be my parting piece of advice is that you matter and your ideas matter. And when you keep finding the mattering in your own work and in your own creative impulses, um, it'll be a lot easier to get through those hard spots. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Positive Productivity Podcast. When I'm not podcasting, I'm supporting six to seven figure business coaches with their marketing automation and entrepreneurs like you through my coaching and mastermind programs. I want to invite you to visit thekimsutton.com to learn how I can help you take your business to the next level. 